0: Well good morning church. So good to see you here worshiping Jesus our Savior this morning. Turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. There is a thing called pastor humor and there's an old pastor joke that, that maybe you've heard before but, but whenever you go to one of these Pastor conferences. They, this is one of these jokes they love to tell, and it's usually whatever denomination you are. They they, they make this story about the, their denomination. I heard this story when I was a pastor in a Baptist church, so I'm going to use the Baptist. That's my background in, ba, in Baptist circles. But the story goes like this: There's a man, a, a a a really dedicated servant of Jesus. He was a Baptist, and he was a deacon in his Baptist church, and uh, he was. He was flying across the Pacific to do some business overseas, and unfortunately, his plane went down, but he survived and he made it to a desert island, and he, he survived on this desert island for years and years. And, uh, you know, just one of those, uh, you know, just amazing survival stories. Well, eventually, uh, a plane flew overhead. They found that there is life on this little des- deserted island. And so a boat came, and, and people came to, to rescue this person. And, and when they got there, this, this man was just just overjoyed to see humanity rescue him. And so he welcomes them to his island, and they, they ask him all these questions. How did you survive? How did you make it? And so he shows them, you know, how he found his food and how he, how he survived with water. And, and then he showed them, you know, the, the, the structures he had built. And there's was three, three buildings that he had built. And so the first structure, they showed him, this is where I live, and this is where I've lived for the last 10 years and, and I've spent all my time here. And, and they said, well, what's, what's this building over here? And we well, said, that's my church. I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and, and I worship God. And so here's, this is where I worship every single Sunday. And they said, well, what's this building over here? What's this third building? He said, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> you know, I, I think that when it comes to uh, uh, people changing church. a lot of times. People change churches because you know they're offended. If there's a new American pastime today, it's the offense of, of ourselves. You know, I, I think that that, that there's it just you talk to people today, and it's normal and natural for people to feel offended. And I don't care what aisle of are, are, you are on politically. There's just this there's this undercurrent of just offense that most people have today. And we've walked through that, especially through the years of COVID, that people offended for wearing masks, not wearing masks, offended how you're going to treat the the, the the virus and how you're not going to treat the virus. But but when I think about this idea of offense and offensiveness that we as human beings and as Americans we carry around today, I, here's the question I think that that makes me wonder. I wonder if our if our captivation, if, if our overwhelming sense of offense that we have today is a result that we have lost sight that we can offend God. And when we lose our sense that God can be offended and there's things that are offensive to God and we put ourselves in a God-like place in our own lives, we walk around as offended continually by what people do to us. The reality that we've been talking about over the last six weeks of this series is really looking at the reality of what Jesus came to do on the cross. And every week we've looked at a different dimension of the cross because I think one of the most important things we can do as followers of Jesus is understand all that Jesus did and all that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And so we looked at the love of of God in, in the cross. We've looked at the, the, the idea of, of, of the power of the cross and understand we need the, the, the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. But the last three weeks, we've really been honing on some really deep theological terms and ideas that we found in scripture. A couple weeks ago, we looked at, or a few weeks ago, we looked at the idea of justified justified by faith in Romans chapter three, and this idea of being declared righteous and propitiation, how there is a change of position that, that the cross of Jesus accomplishes for us, that we were once guilty, but now we are declared righteous. We, are now, we were objects of wrath, but now we are objects of his blessing. So there's a, there's a change in position. And then last week, we looked at, we looked at the, the change in condition. We looked at the purification of the cross, And the reality that that Jesus died and shed his blood to purify us, to make us new. And so not only have we looked at how Jesus changes our condition and changes our position, but he also changes our relationship with him. And that's what that word that, that, that Pastor Jason talked about this morning, that word of reconciliation, is so important for us to understand, the reconciliation of the cross. And if it is true that God has changed our position, has called us justified and has declared us righteous, and if he has purified us and made us new creations in Jesus, what that means is there's a whole new way that you and I relate to God now. And so I want us to understand what reconciliation is and why it is so important. If you think about, about, about where, why Jesus reconciles, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, if you wonder, so much of the Bible points back to the first three chapters of Genesis. They really do. Because one of the things that we know in the Garden of Eden, that God created this this wonderful creation. Not, Not just the material world, but humanity and animals and everything was, he declared, good and very good. But everything was at peace and harmony with one another. God was in perfect harmony with, with mankind. We as human beings were in perfect harmony with creation, with animals, with God, and even with ourselves. But the moment we rebelled against God, something happened to that peace. Something happened to that relationship that was broken. And for since that time, mankind has been striving and searching for a peace not just with God, but within ourselves. You know, the person who says, talks about, you know, maybe we don't talk about, you know, peace with God as much anymore in our secular culture, but you hear people talk a lot of today about the peace, you know, I just don't have peace. I don't have peace, for, I don't have peace within myself. Like they're looking for some kind of internal peace with themselves, and that's a very real thing, but let me just say this. You cannot have that apart from peace with God. Jesus... Came. The whole idea of reconciliation is that Jesus came to make peace with you and with me. He is the one that pursued us. Jesus makes peace possible. I think this is so important today for us to realize that Jesus is the one who makes peace possible possible you will not find peace by going to a religious seminar by going to church by saying hail marys by getting baptized by giving money to a good cause you won't find peace by being nice to other people you you will never be able to find peace in and of yourselves you must find peace with jesus he's the only one that can give you peace And and I think this is so important for us today because because I think if if there's one common problem I believe that most people have, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, is this, that many times, I think there's a common reality. Most men that I disciple, and I've been discipling men for 20 years now, But there's a common theme I can look back and the the dozens of men I've sat with across the table and have discipled and taught the word of God and taught them how to pray and taught them how to follow Jesus better. But there's a common theme that almost every single guy that I've ever talked to deals with. And it's this problem of, I don't feel at peace with God. I don't feel, I don't, you know, sometimes like, I don't feel saved, I don't feel like things are right between me and God. Now, there might be a lot of reasons for that. You know, there might be that there's a sin issue in their life. There might be some other things. But I think the number one reason that, that most of us as followers of Jesus who already believe in the gospel and have placed our faith and trust in God is this issue that we do not take the reality of what Jesus has won for us by his blood and say, I believe it, therefore it does not matter how I feel, I'm going to let my faith determine how I feel at peace with God. That is what we need. We need, not to, we need to stop following our feelings about how you feel at peace and trust in what Jesus has done for you. That's what this passage is all about. And so let's look at how Jesus makes peace possible. I love, you know, we sing songs about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. And that's a title given to him for a lot of reasons. And I, I was thinking about that as, we were, as, we, as I was studying the text in Colossians chapter 1. This reality, that Jesus is given the title of the Prince of Peace because he is the one that makes peace possible. And there's four dimensions of how he makes po- peace possible. We're going to look at his authority, the authority of how, how he makes peace, the, the initiator, he's the initiator of peace, he's the achiever of peace, and then he's the producer of peace. So we're going to look at those four ways in which Jesus makes peace possible for us, and with us. So let's look at verse 8, or sorry, verse 19 again in this letter to Colossians. Now here's, let me give you a, just a couple minute background of this letter to in Colossians. Paul, the apostle Paul, wrote this when he was in prison. Uh, remember, we studied Philippians before we got into the cross series. In Colossians was another letter, it's called a prison epistle that Paul wrote while he was under house arrest in Rome. Now Paul had never been to this church. This church was planted by a man by the name of Epaphras, but Epaphras, who had planted this church and had led this church, visited Paul in Rome and gave Paul an update on this church, and there were some major theological issues that this church had, and the issue was this, that there was a a doctrine, there was a teaching going around that was saying, yeah, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. Jesus is just one source of truth, but he's not the source of truth. Jesus is a good prophet. He might even be a God or, or a representative of God, but he is not God incarnate. And so Paul writes the letter of, of Col- to the church of Colossae to let them know, listen, you have to understand who Jesus is. He is the preeminent one. He is the greatest. There's no one like Jesus. And he is the one that you need for salvation, and salvation is not found in anyone else, but through Jesus. In two weeks on Easter Sunday, we're going to be back in this letter because there's another portion, there's another dimension of the cross that Paul talks about in the second chapter of of Colossians. But Colossians 1, he says some amazing things, but, but the first thing he establishes in verse 19, it says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross now there's something here that we have to understand and we're going to look a little bit deeper into these the, the verses above this but jesus has the authority to make peace that is what paul is establishing first and foremost have you ever wondered why is it important that that the deity of, deity of jesus is is vital and crucial to the gospel message Do you ever wonder that? It is so important that in Paul's teaching them this, that you need to believe in the deity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet. He was fully God and fully man, and his deity was necessary for us to believe in because here's here's the thing. If you are God, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If we have rebelled against God, if we have done our own thing, what we know is this, when you are the person being offended, when you have been offended against, when you have been sinned against, many times you are the one who gets to understand what needs to be done in order to make things right. When someone does something harmful to you, when you, you know, you're married, you get in a, in, a, in a fight, or maybe it's a sibling that you have, you're, you're in a, an argument with, with, a, with a sibling. But, but when something like that happens, it's usually the person who is offended that gets to be the one that says, "Hey, listen, uh, you know what you did really, really harmed me, and this is this is how we can make it right." But but there, there's a problem because many times we're between two human beings, that that you know what what to, what can you do to make it right? We're flawed, and so if you harm me this much, I want this much recompense. We love to do that. And so, what we need as humans is we need a judge to help us understand no, this is what is, is right. Here's, here's, a, here's a tangible way to make things right. That's why we have judges in, in our land. And that's why you, as parents, uh, have, you know, when you have kids. I know, I know my family was very unique in this, but my kids actually fought when they were younger. <laughs> I know that you, as you think, you know, you're a pastor, Ben, but, but, but did you know that pastor kids actually fought? They have sin natures just like everybody else. But you know, you remember when your kids were young and they would fight and they would get in these disagreements and arguments and it didn't matter who was the offender or who was the offended, there, there, there was always an escalation of things, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And finally you get them together and, and the first thing is, all right, what happened? Who did who to What? And so you're trying to decipher what really happened. And you fi- figure out that, that usually, most times there's two offenders, but, but every once in a while there would be one major offender. And then there would be one person who was, who was offended. And then you would try to work through, okay, do you understand what you did wrong? Do you understand, can you, can you forgive this person? Can you, can you ask for forgiveness? Can you apologize for what you did? And there's always these moments, as, as I was, you know, you're trying to mediate these two warring factions in your home. And they would always get to this point. They always get to this point in in the relationship mending. All right, what I want you guys to do is I want you to hug each other. Did you ever do this as parents? And then the kids are like, like the weakest possible hug that any human being can possibly do. And I would say, Tell them that you love one another. I love you. I love you too. Now, in that moment, was there reconciliation? No. But, but I, was, I, I was there. I was the authority. I knew what had to happen. I was the one that can determine this is what you must do to, to them, and this is what you must, just must do to them. There's an authority that, I, that God has placed as parents over children. And, and if that is true for the family unit, how much more is that true for the entire hum, human race? that God is the one who can establish, I am the one who tells you what must be done and what must not be done. And in Jesus, we have in verse 19, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is so important. That is so important because he's establishing who Jesus is. And I want you to see why he's establishing this. If you go up to verse 14, we'll have these verses on the screen. He makes a claim in verse 14 that he is, he's explaining and explaining why this is so important. But in verse 14, talking about Jesus, he says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is talking about a very real issue. We talked about redemption two weeks ago. But the problem that we, you and I have is we have sins that must be forgiven. Forgiveness is a word that is, that's a relationship word. In order to make peace with God, what the problem is we've talked about two weeks ago when we talked about the idea of being justified, being declared righteous, even though we have sins, but there is a price paid. And we can we can feel we can feel great about our position being changed, and we can feel great that God has purified our sins by his blood. But what you and I need is to know that we are forgiven. And there's no man And no woman on the face of this planet that can tell you that you are forgiven. God alone tells you you're forgiven or whether you're not. He is the one who determines who is forgiven and who is not forgiven. And he makes, Paul makes this outlandish claim that the forgiveness of sins is possible through Jesus. And then he goes into this beautiful explanation of who Jesus is. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, let's stop right there. That phrase right there, thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities, that is a, that's a term referencing the spirit world, okay? Now, what we're going to do, I'm, there's a reason for this in the context of this passage. We're going to talk about this a, a little bit later in this, in this sermon, but I want you to remember that. Okay, so so that's uh, all all things were created through him and for him. In verse 17, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together, both physical and spiritual. The physical, the material world and the spiritual world. In verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is the one who has the authority. He is the one who has the authority to tell you you're forgiven or whether you're not forgiven. So let's go back to the whole feeling thing. It doesn't matter whether or not you feel forgiven. What matters is you believe that Jesus is the one, if he declares you forgiven, you are forgiven. He's got the authority. And we've got to stop trusting in the authority of what people tell us. What a a book, you know, know, I, I read this book and this is what they, I don't care what book man writes. If Jesus has declared that you are forgiven because you have placed your faith and trust in him, you are forgiven. He has the authority to do so. But not only does, does Jesus have the authority to make peace with us and declare us forgiven, number two, he's the initiator of peace. He's the initiator of peace. Let's look, again look at verse 20. It says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, Making peace by the blood of the cross. Underline that word making peace. That word making peace is a very unique Greek word. It's only mentioned one time. It's a verb that's used one time in all of the New Testament. There's a noun, the noun form of this verb, making peace. We find it elsewhere one other time. And it's in Matthew chapter five, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. This is a verb form of that noun but it says Jesus is the one who's making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, why is that so important? Why is it important that Jesus makes peace? He is the initiator of peace. He's the one whose idea it was to make peace. He's the one that said, there's a problem in our relationship and I've got to do something about it. Why did Jesus have to be the initiator of peace? Well, he explains in verse 21. In you, that's talking about all of us here, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, there's something, we've talked about this every week, that our nature is not just sinners, but committing sins, that we have to understand who we are apart from Jesus. And once again, we see here, there's a reason why Jesus had to be the initiator. Because we would not have initiated Jesus on our own. None of us would. I don't care if you grew up in church. I don't care if you went to Sunday school every week growing up. I don't care if you were faithfully attended or you read your Bible or you went to Awana and you got the gold stars. There's none of us by nature, even if we grew up within the church, pursue God on our own. All of us, all of us had a wall, an emotional wall, a relationship wall that said, God, I would rather do what I want to do and not what you want me to do. I want to do my own thing. There's many different words for sin uh, that the Bible uses. The most common one is is this word to miss the mark, this idea that sin is, there's a a standard of holiness that God has for us. And when we do what we want to do and we do our own thing, we miss the mark and we it's kind of like a guy shooting an arrow or or, uh, we miss the bullseye, that's called sin. But there's another word that the Bible uses for sin. And this word is a word that, that basically means rebellion. It's this idea that says, I want, to, I want to do things my way, God, and not your way. That is the kind of sinfulness that Paul is referring to in this passage. Look at those three words again, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that there was something about our our regular nature not just in our thinking but in our hearts that said god i want to do my own thing now here's here's where this whole thing gets really tricky because many times when it comes to pursuing god we come up with our own rules now back in the day when there was the gods the gods were angry there's this idea that they, 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 all the gods were angry. The sky god, the, the, the land god, the god of the water, the god of fish. The, I mean, the, you know, the plethora of gods. And all the gods just had this predisposition of being angry at humanity. And so what we had to do is we had to figure out a way to make the, 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 the gods not as angry with us. And so here's what you have to understand. Every single human religion, we, we're doing a great series on, re, on world religions on our Life Talks podcast. We've covered Islam, we've covered uh, uh, Hinduism, we just covered Buddhism, or I think that episode will be released this week. But we're, we're doing this series on world religions, and here's what's so fascinating about all these religions. And there are other religions, even Christian religions, that will do this as well. Christian perversions of the true Christianity. This idea that we it's up to me to appease God's anger. God is generally, just—you disp- know he just has this, I'm just angry at humanity. So what we've got to do is come up with our own list of things to do to climb the ladder to make sure that we get accepted by God, that we are, that we are at peace with God, that we can appease God. Now listen, there is a difference between appeasing God and having peace with God. And here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus, the whole idea of the Christian faith, it flips the entire idea of human religion and man-made religion on its head. Because if every man's idea of religion is we've got to do things to appease God, Jesus looks at our rebellion and says, no, I'm coming down to save you. You don't want me. Yeah, you come up with your own ideas of how to appease me because that's what is reflected of your own heart. But I'm telling you this, I want you. I desire you. I want you. And that is the beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel is a story, not where we are working and striving and and we're just saying, I'm just trying to find God. No, the story of the gospel is this. We were doing our own thing. We were living our own way. We were alienated and hostile against God. But Jesus was the one who pursued you. He was the one that came to this earth. He was the one that initiated the peace. You know, they, sometimes we hear these human stories. Uh, and I, I remember hearing a, a couple months ago, there was a woman in our church that we were talking about. It was during back during the Jonah series this, in the past, this past summer. And uh, it was this idea of forgiveness, and we were talking about it. And she shared me her story of how she had grown up in a, in a family where, where her father was not very loving and kind to her. But now he, you know, they were estranged for most of their life. And, but here he was older and, and, and dying. And she, she did everything she could to reach out to him and to make peace with him. And I found it just a fascinating story. It's a reflection of someone whose heart has been touched by the gospel. And, and as I heard that, I just there's so much honor when you hear someone who has been the offended one. Someone who's been sinned against. And they are the ones who are looking to make peace. You know as that blows us away at a very human level, how much more does God do that for us? And he keeps coming. He's, he keeps pursuing. And listen, he's pursuing you this morning. Whether you are his child or not his child, I want you to know something. God desires you. He desires a relationship with you because he loves you that much. And it's so important for us to understand that. So not only does is Jesus have the authority to make peace, and he's the initiator of peace, but he's also the achiever of peace. He is the one who makes peace possible. Look what, again what it says in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It is through his death, it's through the spilling of his blood that he was able to make peace. Remember, he, he, it's like he plowed away the, 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 when we talked about the last couple weeks, this, um, this idea of being declared righteous, how he, how he paid the penalty for our sins. How he, 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 was, he absorbed the wrath of God, the propitiation for our sins, right? And he purified us, he purified us from our sins. It's, it's almost like all of those acts of what the cross did for us was like this giant snow plow. If you've ever been snowed in or you know I'm from Pennsylvania every once you get snowed in the just the roads are impassable every every once in a while and and just you sometimes you need that snowplow that giant truck with that giant plow just to just to push the things that are barriers so that cars can get through, and when we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, there's this, these plows that just push through the sin and the offense and the, the rebellion and all these things, and he, he pushed all of the sin through, the plowing through the sin, and he did that, why? So that he could walk through that and say, now you and I can be reconciled, and this word reconcile is really important because there are just actually two different kinds of words that are used to describe reconcile. Now, now, they're both, the, the, this, this, basically the same word katalaso. Catalasso is the word that's, rec, that's um, translated reconcile. And that's the normal word that's used to be translated reconcile. We see this in Reve, uh, Romans chapter five, right? That while we were his enemies, Christ reconciled us to himself. But this is a word that means, uh, with a prefix, A-P-O, Apa and that word is an emphatic use of katalasso. It means this, there is such complete reconciliation, there's no more reconciliation that you possibly need. The idea is there's nothing more that, that you need than Jesus Christ. You don't need Jesus plus anything else to, to bridge that gap of relationship. There's nothing that you need to do to make peace with God except to accept his forgiveness, to accept his his sacrifice. That's all we do is placing our faith in him. But Jesus carries all the weight of reconciling us to himself. He's the one that does it all, and he does it completely. There's nothing else that we need to look for. So he is the one who achieves peace. But there's another thing here, and I'm not sure if you read it that made you scratch your head. But in verse 20, it says, talking about Jesus, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, how do you reconcile all things on earth and in heaven to yourself? Now, what does he mean by that? What does this complete reconciliation mean? Now, now if you're reading this, and maybe sometimes you've heard people use this verse to talk about how, hey, listen, eventually all people will be saved. There's a book that was written probably a decade ago. It's called Love Wins. It was by this Christian uh, author who's, who's really turned his back on the, the, the Orthodox Christian faith. But the idea was eventually everyone's going to make it to heaven. Everyone does. Because, you know, you look at this verse. What does he say? He's going to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So does this mean universal salvation or what the, the theologians call universalism? Now, now this does not mean that there's universal salvation. And the reason why I know that is for, for a number of things. Number one, the Bible teaches that there will be a judgment against all wicked people and against all even wicked spirits. That there's a judgment that's coming against everyone that, that does not trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And so what, what this can't mean is, is that the Bible can't contradict itself. So what does this really mean, that he will will reconcile all things to himself? And he's talking, again, he's not just talking about human beings. He's saying whether on heaven or on earth, he's talking about angelic beings. If this was universalism, that would mean that Satan is eventually going to be saved. That's not going to happen, people. So what does this mean? This does not mean universal salvation. What it does mean is universal submission. Universal submission. We know there are, there are passages of scripture that we have seen before. We just talked about this a couple months ago, Philippians chapter 2. What does it say in Philippians 2? That, that, that beautiful uh, uh, doxology of Jesus, that kenosis passage that we preached on a number of, of, of months ago, this idea that it says this, at, at that time, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, whether on earth or under the earth. See, there's going to be a moment that every single living being, whether it is a spirit being or a human being, that will bow their knee to Jesus as Lord. There's another verse that says in in, in Hebrews chapter 2 that he has placed all things in subjection to him, but we do not see all things in subjection to him. What this means is that there's two ways that we are going to be reconciled to God we will be either reconciled to him through forgiveness or we will be reconciled to him through judgment. But there will be a reconciliation. I love reading history books. And, and um, one of my favorite authors who's a historian is Stephen Ambrose. And Stephen Ambrose, if you've ever read any of his books, he wrote Band of Brothers. Uh, I think my favorite book that he's written is Undaunted Courage on the, the Story of Lewis and Clark. And he's just, the way he writes and, and his knowledge, and it's just, it's just amazing. And, and uh, I just recently got another book of his, and it's called, it's entitled To America. And what Stephen Ambrose does is he takes the, the you know, five decades of, of him being a, a professional historian and, and an author and a teacher and professor. And he, he just basically has these many chapters in there about different moments in American history. And they're fascinating. And I just absolutely I love it. it and, and, and I just read the other day about the, the, the World War II uh, Pacific Theater. And in there, He's debating whether or not it was right for, for America to use the atomic bomb. And they're just weighing those things out in light of what we know now and the, the history of the moment and all those things, I'm not here to debate whether or not Americans should have used that or not. But the reality was this. There were people in authority of our nation that said the cost of taking over that, that people group will cost us either between 800,000 and a million lives. And But we, we need to subdue these people. And therefore they dropped an atomic bomb to subdue the Japanese nation. And they made reconciliation. They made reconciliation. Now again, we can debate whether or not we should have done that was that was that righteous was it not righteous but there's 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 an event that's going to happen in human history that that is way bigger than what happened at Hiroshima and Nakasagi and that is this the bible calls it the day of the lord Craig one of our elders taught on this yesterday in our men's in our men's group on Saturday mornings men's coffee it was phenomenal but but there will be a day when Jesus returns, not as the Prince of Peace, but with a sword in his mouth. And he will come, he will come to subdue the nations. And they will be subdued. But what we have to understand this, that Jesus is the one who achieves peace and he achieves complete peace. He achieves complete peace. The, here's what you and I need to remember that you and I have a choice right now. Whether or not we are gonna make peace with God through Jesus in his forgiveness, or one day we will reject that and we, he will make peace with us through his judgment. But that is the choice that every single one of us in this room must make. And not just in this room, outside of this room. How important is us for us to share the message of Jesus? Jesus will, one day, one day, all knees will bow before Jesus as Lord. But we will either do it out of worship, we will either do it out of love, or it will be done out of judgment. So Jesus is the achiever of peace. But not only is he the achiever of peace, he's also the producer. So he has the authority to make peace. He's the initiator of peace. He's the achiever of peace. And finally, he's the producer of peace. Jesus is the producer of peace. I love how this text ends. We looked at verse 21. It says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, you love how Paul juxtaposes those three terms in verse 21 with these three terms in verse 22. You were once alienated, hostile in mind. You, you were, doer, you were e- doers of evil deeds, but now. You're going to be, the whole idea of reconciliation, the whole idea of making peace with you is not just to say, okay, you're, you and I are at peace. It is to completely transform us and to renew this relationship and to completely change our relationship. It's not like, hey, you're now at peace with God. Now don't just, just don't screw it up. That's not it. It's I, you've now been made, you've now have peace with God and God is going to keep making peace with you. He's here to make you new, to transform your life. Yes, you once were alienated and hostile in your mind, but now he's going to make you, he's going to present you holy and blameless. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. There is a promise. There is a promise that God has given all of us that have entered into a relationship with him that he doesn't just, it's not just like, okay, you're in the family, I'm going to leave you alone. Do you ever have a boss like that? You, know, you, you go to a job, and you're like, okay, I'm ready to work, and you know, they show you your office, they show you, you know, the, where the copier is, the break room, the bathrooms, they give you the manual, and they're like, see you later. <laughs> you ever had a boss like that? And you're sitting there, and you're like, okay, I guess i got to figure this out on my own. And you talk to other people, talk to friends, and you're like, okay, h- how do I make this work? Jesus isn't like that. Jesus brings you into his family and then he guides you and he, he, is, he is the one working inside of you to multiply peace in your life, to, to make your relationship with him not just, hey, we're at peace, hey, hey we're okay. No, he is bringing you close so that you might be his friend. Jesus told his disciples, I call you my friends if you obey my commandments. And there's the relationship that Jesus wants with us. He wants obedience. He wants our obedience and he wants our love not to make peace. He wants our obedience and he wants our love because we have peace. And you trying to be holy and blameless and above reproach, if you don't understand, if you don't, if you're not, if your heart is not captivated by the love of Jesus... Then, then his work and his desire for you to be holy and blameless and above reproach will feel like a burden to your soul. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way he wants you to feel. He wants you to understand he is working to make all things new inside. Of him. He's breaking down. I, there's another passage, there's a parallel passage to this in Ephesians chapter 2. But he uses the same word of, of, uh, of reconciliation, talking about how Jesus came to break down the dividing wall of hostility between human beings. And the reason why Jesus is going to present, uh, he wants to present us holy and blameless and above reproach, he he knows when we do that, it multiplies peace to other people horizontally. When When we understand how much we are at peace with God vertically, we can be at peace with other people horizontally. And he ends this text, this ends this passage by saying, if indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, right there, you might be thinking, whoa, 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 wait a second, Ben. You've been telling me this whole time God made peace with me. That he, you know, that snow plow, that sin plow, he just, he just plowed out the sin, and now we've got a new position, we've got a new condition, we've got a new relationship, but then you're just telling me that there's a condition? If I continue in the faith, what, what do you mean by that? Now, now listen, here's, here's what you have to understand. What Paul is saying here, there's many kinds of conditional clauses in the Greek language. This is what we consider a first conditional Greek clause, which means it's guaranteed to happen. What he is saying here, is he's, what he's avoiding is people that are proclaiming, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I believe in Jesus, it's this. It's I've I, uh, I've said I've said a prayer when I was young. I'm okay, and then go on living their life however they want. God is Paul is addressing that. No, if you truly have made peace with God, if you truly have put your faith and trust in Him, then you will love Him, and you will continue on. It's what theologians call perseverance of the saints. And it's not just, hey, once I'm saved, always saved. Like, it's just kind of this ticket, hey, I've, I said this prayer at VBS, and now I never have to worry again about anything. There's a great story that, that J.D. Greer tells in his book, Stop Asking Jesus in Your Heart. And if you've never read that book, I would encourage you to find that book, read it. It's a great book to read. But this book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, it's a very small book, but, but, but J.D. Greer, the pastor of Summit Church out in Raleigh, he tells a story how years ago he was on the basketball court playing basketball, pick pick-up basketball uh, in his neighborhood, and there's this guy there, and he just, everything about him emanated that he was not a follower of Jesus. The language he used, the escapades he was bragging about, and so, so somehow during a break in the action, J.D. starts to, share Jesus and share the gospel with this guy. And About halfway through the, his, his talk, this guy goes, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, dude, are you trying to witness to me? He said, yeah. <laughs> he says, man, don't, don't worry, man, I'm good. Man, when I was 13 years old, I went to a Christian camp, and and I went forward, and and I prayed, and I and I received Jesus. And man, I was like super Christian for a couple years, and I just man, I was all into Jesus. But man, then I then I discovered girls and sex, and I just was like, man, I, I try to balance both of those out for a while. But then I was like, man, girls are way better than God, and and I just I just put God on the shelf for a while. But now I'm at the point where I don't even believe in God now. But he says, don't worry. Because I know, you're Southern Baptist, and you Southern Baptists believe that once I'm saved, I'm always saved, so I'm good either way. (laughs) Is Is that, did that person continue in the faith? No, he didn't continue in the faith. You know why? Because he was never in the faith to begin with. Now let me just say this. Some of you might have children that, that are not walking with Jesus. And, and I, I, want to be, I want to be very sensitive to, about this, but, but, but hear this. I meet far too many parents that put their kids into heaven because of a couple moments they had as a child. Listen, if, if your child is not continuing in the faith, they may not be a follower of Jesus. Jesus. And I think we need, to, we need to have honest conversations with, with, with God and with ourselves and with, the, with our children. But, but I, I, I say that not to, not, not to discourage you. I just, I, I think there's a lot of, hey, we're, everything, everyone's okay. I think as much as, as dangerous as it is, I talked about this, that we base our, our faith on our feelings. There's just another, there's another danger of, of putting everyone that we know into heaven because of something that they did as a child. But there's no proof of it afterwards. Because we know this. If Jesus truly has changed someone's life, it will show. It will show. Peace will be produced in their life. Peace will be multiplied. And so not only is He the He's the Prince of Peace who multiplies peace out of our lives and into the peace with others. So there's a couple questions I want to have us to contemplate, and then and then we're done. The first one is this Are you at peace with God? Do you know for certain that you have peace with God? Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Not, by, not because of what you feel or how you feel this morning. You know, some of you are like, I feel saved after I drink my first cup of coffee. That's not faith. That's caffeine. Stop, stop letting your feelings dictate to you how to act before the Lord. We talked about this last week. We need to draw near first. Draw near, boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? Because you have been reconciled. You have peace with God. Let us stand on that promise and live in that promise and stop acting according to our feelings and start acting according to our faith. But do you have peace with God? Are you certain of it this morning? If, you, if you're not certain that you do, I want to encourage you to talk to someone. You can see me after the service. We have a prayer team out in the lobby, and they've got little red lanyards, and they have a little signs that say, how can I pray for you? But, but they'll be out there. If you have questions about how to be, have, have, be at peace with God, please talk to someone this morning. The second question I have for you is this. Are you enjoying God's peace? Are you enjoying your relationship with God Man, if if it is true that Jesus has made reconciliation, complete reconciliation with us, he's turned us from enemies into friends. We have this beautiful relationship now. Man, every day we wake up is a gift. We should begin our day thanking and praising God for what he has done for us. Let's start enjoying it. Start enjoying the peace that he has won for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the last question is this, are you at peace with others? Are you at peace with others? Do you have the kind of peace in your life? Because God has made peace with you, are you now someone who God is working and changing and transforming to make you holy and blameless and above reproach? And that peace is now working out of you towards other people. Man, that, that is what God does. Once God changes us and brings us near, he, we start bringing other people near in our, in our hearts, in our lives. Because we can't help but share the love by which we have been captivated by. We have been made, made, we've been made peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. Before we sing this last song, I just wanna encourage you right now in this moment, no matter what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what are you trusting in for your peace? What are you standing on? What are you hoping in? Is it the blood of Jesus Christ? And if it is, rejoice. Be at rest. Have joy right now in your heart of what God's done. Just reflect this gratitude before the Lord right now. But if you're sitting there and your soul is troubled, if your heart is burdened, if the weight of sin that you feel you know you carry and has not been given to Jesus, I want to encourage you again to come. Don't leave here today doubting your peace with God. Jesus, we come before you right now asking you to do a work in us. And God, you're either gonna do a work of, of conviction or a work of worship. But we know this, we, we, our hearts need to be captivated by the reality that you have made peace with us. We love you so much, Jesus. But we can only love you by how much we know that we have been loved and you loved us enough to initiate peace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. May we live like that today. In everything we say, in everything we do, in every relationship, God, may may the peace of God emanate from our lives. We pray these things by the Prince of Peace. Amen. Let's stand and sing to our Lord.